You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good afternoon, and today we're starting a new Torah, a new book in the Torah. Until now we were in the book of Exodus, and we just finished last week the book of Exodus, so now we begin the book of Leviticus. The book of Leviticus is a little more uh, detailed of laws. When we talk about laws, especially laws which are complex concerning the sacrifices and laws which have other things that, you know, not as exciting stories, if you want to call it, that we have during the book of Exodus. So as we talk about, and it begins with the laws of sacrifices, as we're going to go into into a moment. In general, in people's personalities, you would usually split it up. You can split it up, I should say, into two categories. People who every couldn't don't look back, they just keep on marching forward. There's nothing, even though they may have done things wrong in the past, they're just able to just keep on moving and they just march along, don't look back. And then you have other people that anytime something happens, it's a crisis. Every single thing they get involved in all of a sudden becomes a crisis, the world is falling apart, and they keep on reflecting, they drive in the rear view mirror, if you want to call it that. They don't have the fortitude or the ability to march on. No matter what happens in life, they're in crisis mode. Where does it happen, these two types of personalities? Where do these two types of individuals come from? Well, you can say it's not only in personalities of the individual, but it also can be two ways and methods how the evil inclination also works in trying to control or persuade us. The evil inclination can sometimes tell us, you know, sometimes slowly creeps onto us and does small maneuvers to be able to get us to influence us. And sometimes it does the opposite. It starts to exaggerate an episode that happened and making it into something of monumental. It's a crisis and all of a sudden you have to deal with it to be able to distract you from what you really should be doing. They say one of the, uh, they did a study in Germany many years ago about 150 years ago, about a frog. You know, frogs don't like hot water. The moment you put it into hot water, it'll jump out because it reacts. You know, it doesn't want to be in hot water. It only likes cold water. But what happens if you put a frog into cold water and then turn up the heat? The frog, being that it becomes adaptive to its situation, it won't jump out. It will just adapt to wherever it is. And so therefore the cold water, and then it gets stirring hot until finally it destroys the frog. Because the frog it becomes so complacent with its situation that it won't jump out of it. Now, there have been studies, of course, that debunk it, but it's an interesting study. Why? Because this is actually the personality of humans. You tell something extreme to a person, no way, they're never going to do it, it's not happening. But what about if you just give it to them in small doses? Mm-hmm. It starts becoming normal. Okay, a little bit, I can live with it. Think about it. Any dictatorship didn't come in that moment and say, you guys, we got to change from step one. A little bit of anti-Semitism here. The Jews are taking over a little bit there and showing little snippets exactly what Hitler did in Germany. He started one country at a time with one mythology and by slowly but surely Nazism became the common way of every German. If you would have told them about Nazism the way it is in the forefront, nobody would have believed it. Same thing with communism, same thing with any type of ism that you can pick that destroyed a population or took over a certain type of mentality or thinking did not become that overnight. 
It happened because of a gradual process that got people into thinking into a certain normality, made things which were extreme normal. And that's what the way, the method to be able to convince any human being into something is by giving them small doses of it and showing them that they haven't become an, uh, a monkey because of it, they haven't changed because of it, and look, the world is still standing, and we can still have this extreme view. And they weren't looked like as a conspiracy theory or extremists or anything of that nature. But what's the alternative to it? The alternative is not much better. When a person wakes up and he's always thinking about how bad the world is and how everything in this life is a conspiracy, also is not a good thing. So how do we fix to be able to have a proper medium? You know, if everybody's thinking, look at what's going to happen today, look what's going to happen tomorrow, no world is going to... Again, there's a problem. At the same time, think of a person, you know, very practically speaking, think of a person that's on a diet. When do people break their diet the most? Not when they're in a good mood. When all of a sudden they come home and they're tired and they say, let me just have one bowl of ice cream today. And one bowl of ice cream leads to another one and to another one and say, look, I've survived, nothing happened to me. And we convince ourselves that we're, we're all right and everything that's going to work out. So sometimes you do need crisis mode. While it's some, because if you become um, too, because when you normalize everything that's bad, you never realize what's bad. And but sometimes when you're living in crisis mode, it's also not good. Because when you're living in crisis mode, you then justify everything. Well, it's a crisis and therefore you have to do it. Think about, you know, COVID that just happened. Because of it, we, everything became rational. Everything became normal. Or everything became an abnormal. Whatever you want, any way equation you were on. In fact, Ramendel Futafas used to say, interestingly enough, when he was 10 years in Siberia, you get to learn a lot of uh, sampling of different humanity the way they are. And he says he was once sitting in his bunker. And he's lying down on that, uh, barely out of, on his barracks, and he's looking up and he sees in the beams, there's a spider and there's a mosquito. And, this, and the mosquito is flying, zapping around, and he's waiting for the spider to, like, catch the mosquito. But he sees the spider's not moving, it doesn't seem too excited to get the mosquito. But as the mosquitoes, you know, the way the mosquito goes back and forth, banging into the beams, finally the mosquito gets tired, starts resting between the beams, and all of a sudden, the spider starts making its web, traps it, and has it. He says, what do you learn from it? He says, the evil inclination, when we're in the passion and running around and excited, the evil inclination doesn't bother us. When we get tired from banging our head into the beams, all of a sudden, it zaps us in our time of vulnerability. The same idea is also when we talk about the ideas of, you know, when we, in fact, the Alter Rebbe talks about it in Tanya a lot, when he talks about the concept of, the, of being despondent and not being despondent because of materialistic things when a person's despondent because of spiritual things he says oh look i didn't go to shul i didn't learn torah i feel bad about myself he says that is coming from the evil inclination because the evil inclination says look you did one sin okay you saw you survived don't be despondent about it just go do another one just do another one and don't worry you'll become normal it normalizes the bad behavior so to speak and therefore despondency causes you to, so to speak, fall into the trap of the evil inclination. So even despondency from a spiritual matter is coming from the evil inclination. So when we talk about a person feeling guilty, and therefore we have the question that begs for explanation, what's better? Is it better to live an exaggerated feeling, so to speak, having that feeling of anxiousness and anxiety of crisis mode, 
or to just be lax where nothing is ma- matters, being nonchalant about anything that happens and couldn't care less. And which one is it? Seemingly, if I'm nonchalant about anything, I could fall deeper down into it because nothing makes a difference in my life. So the way we're going to analyze it and see it is from the beginning of this week's Torah reading, where the Torah talks about the sacrifices that have to be brought when a person does something wrong. And the Torah describes what the different sacrifices a person was meant to bring when they sinned. And there's different types of sins. This week's Torah reading talks about all the multitude types of sins that a person can do, which, and what sacrifices they would have to bring. And it basically split up into two types of sins. There are sins that a person does advertently, and sins that a person does inadvertently. Now, when we talk about sins that a person does, there is, you know, um, a person does a sin inadvertently, therefore he regrets, he regrets what he did, and therefore he has to bring a sin offering to ask repentance for what he did. So when you can have a person who is regretting what they've done, but as you know, not every regret is the same. I can regret and say, oh, I did something wrong, okay, now let's go on to the next piece and do it right over again. And then you can have a regret that lives with a person, so to speak, bogs them down from moving forward because since they're still living in regret mode. So we can call it, if we want to say, in the terminology of the Torah, something called a female regret and a male regret. What do I mean by that? The female regret, as we talk about, is something which is softer, more relaxed, while the male regret is more of a pronounced response. In general, when we talk about the difference between, as we're going to get to in a moment, when God spoke to the Jewish women, he spoke to them more in a soft tone, to the males, while he came more in a strong tone. So generally, when we talk about male or female dominance, female usually comes to mean, as we say in that God, actually, in a soft-spoken voice, while the male is more in a tough, tough type of guy. The same ideas also we're going to see about the difference in how the animal sacrifices that were done as well. So when we look at the Torah reading of this week's Torah reading, beginning the book of Leviticus, the book of Leviticus starts to tell us about the laws of all the sacrifices. There's over a hundred different laws in the book of Leviticus that talk about the details. In fact, and the Medrash calls the Torah's Kohanim. It's all about the laws of what the Kohanim have to do in this holy temple. Because one, to bring a sacrifice in the holy temple, had to be a Kohen. A non-Kohen bringing a sacrifice was not allowed. And we're talking about primarily, as we mentioned, about the sacrifices which a person would bring. In Hebrew, it's called a Karban Chatas, for an inadvertent behavior, transgression or a carbon asham for an advertent type of transgression. And we'll talk about soon why would somebody bring a sacrifice if he advertently did something wrong. So let's start first with the first one, carbon chatas, which is a sin offering for doing something inadvertently. The sacrifice that is brought is a female ox or lamb that a person brings, and if he can't afford it, they can bring a meal offering, but it's a female sacrifice which is brought for inadvertent sacrifice. There are 43 different laws, and the harshest laws, so for example, any law that would, if he would do it advertently, he would be penalized by heaven. So for example, eating on Yom Kippur, desecrating the Shabbos, or anything of those natures where the laws are seemingly harsh, you would then bring a sacrifice for doing it inadvertently. What does it mean inadvertently? There are two ways. Either I forget, either I don't know it's Shabbos. Let's take example Shabbos. Either I don't know it's Shabbos, or I don't know it's prohibited on Shabbos. 
So either one of those, I've done a transgression because I don't know about the law. So therefore, it's considered inadvertently. Once I find out, I then have to go and bring a sacrifice for it. An advertent law means that I've done something on purpose, if you want to call it. It's called bemazed in Hebrew. But this is a type of law which is not as harsh. So for example, if a person stole from somebody, besides returning the item that he stole, and he knew that he was stealing from the individual, he then has to bring a sacrifice as well. That means it's considered more of a lenient type of sacrifice because he actually returned the item, even though he advertently did it, but because there was a way for him to, so to speak, make up what he did, the sacrifice is only a supplement to it. While in the inadvertent uh, transgression, it's a harsher mitzvah that he transgressed, but it's more of a also harsher punishment because if you would have done it advertently, it would have been a harsher punishment as well. So we see over here there's a big difference between all of them. Is because when it comes to the inadvertent law, which we would call a chatas, he brings a female sacrifice. While when it comes to something that he did on purpose, he's going to bring a male sacrifice. Why the difference? In fact, the only time one would bring a female offering, even for, I'm sorry, a male offering, even for inadvertent law, was if it was a king or a Kohen Gadol, that they did something wrong by mistake, then they would also bring a chatas, a, ma- a male chatas as well, not a female. Why the difference? So Nachmanides gives a fascinating de- explanation. And Nachmanides explains and he says, is because when a person does something inadvertently, they become, the concept is that they are bringing a sin that they did not because they wanted. It wasn't a wanton sin. It was something that they did advertently. And therefore, the way a person does it is through bringing a female sacrifice because it was something that made them soft. It came out of a place of weakness. While when a person does a wanton sin, he purposely does it, he has to bring a male offering because that shows of his, uh, you know, that he did it on purpose because of his, uh, you know, so to speak, stubbornness or whatever it may be, and we'll get to it in a moment. But even more so, it shows that the concept of the female sacrifices because it's not as because it's be, because it's more the difference in animal so to speak the female animal was not considered as important as the male animal so the female animal was done for the sin that he did inadvertently while the male animal is considered more the dominant one which was given for the sin that a person did on purpose interesting to note that when a person brings a sacrifice because of a donation because he wants to bring a sacrifice then he can bring any type he wants. He can bring a male or a female. It doesn't make a difference which one. So the bottom line is what we see over here is why the bottom line we see is the difference between the female sacrifices and the male sacrifice, one for a wanton sin and one for an inadvertent sin. There's an interesting Talmud that talks about in the tractate of Shabbos. Rabbi Yishma, there's a law that the Torah says that the, our rabbis say that one should not read to the light of a candle. Why? On Shabbat. Because we're concerned that he may add oil when he wants it to uh, continue reading. And that is not allowed to be done on Shabbos. So therefore, don't begin by reading by the light of a candle. So you shouldn't come to do that law. There was a great uh, Talmudic scholar by the name of Rabbi Shmuel And he said, I have good conscience of mind. I don't have to be concerned about reading by the light of a candle. 
And therefore, I'm not going to come to adding oil. And therefore, he went and he read by the light of a candle. And while he was reading by the light of a candle, he thought about, he didn't even do it, he thought about adding oil to the candle. And he said, he pronounced, when the holy temple will be built, I will bring a juicy sin offering because I didn't listen to the words of the rabbis. Again, you see over here the concept of bringing a juicy sin offering, recognizing that what he did wrong was seemingly severe. But over here a person can ask the obvious question. What is the symbolism of this female sacrifice, that's the female animal that one brings for the sin offering? Does that mean that the inadvertent sin is more severe or is it less severe? Which one is more harsh? The inadvertent offering or the uh, wanton sin? Everybody would say, of course, a wanton sin a person does on purpose, that should be more severe. But if you look at the different sacrifices that were brought, why are you bringing a sin offering on a sin that a person would be liable of capital punishment seems even more severe? Why are we bringing a softer offering on something which seemingly looks like a more severe avera? On the regular ones, when we talk about the offerings that a person's bringing because they did something on purpose, yes, I understand it's on purpose, but it's a sin offering that a person would, you know, he pays back the loan anyway, he, so to speak, he, he fixed the problem. Over here, when we're talking about an inadvertent sin that a person did, when we look at Shabbos or whatever it may be, this is something of severe, severity. But at the same time, he's bringing an animal which is less worthy. In fact, Maimonides says the only reason why a Kohen Gadol brings a male offering when he did something wrong is because the Kohen Gadol is important, so therefore we want to show a sacrifice of importance. Shouldn't you bring a sacrifice of importance when doing something, when you did something inadvertently? Even more so, the question can be. When you're bringing a sin offering, that is your repentance, Right? When you're doing it by the one that you did a wanton sin, your repentance is technically already that you returned the item or what you did because you did it on purpose because, or if there is a repentance. Shouldn't you be investing more in something that's your repentance than something that is more symbolic? And therefore the sin offering that's inadvertent because it's for a greater mitzvah, it should be more of an important animal. Why are we only settling, so to speak, for a smaller female animal and not the male animal if the concept is importance? So the question even goes a little deeper and takes it into a step further, which is what is the Torah, what is the concept that why should a person bring us an offering for doing something inadvertently? If a person, for example, ate on Yom Kippur because he didn't know it was, on Yom, Kippur, it was Yom Kippur, he didn't do anything wrong, he didn't know it was Yom Kippur. Why does he even have to bring us an offering? Why should the Torah tell us that a person has to bring a sin offering because he did something wrong. If he didn't know that he did something wrong, why am I liable for it? When we look at the Torah, talks about the concept of doing something wrong, it's seemingly the Torah puts a lot of responsibility on an individual even though it was done inadvertently. I'll give you an example. If let's say you're schlepping a freezer down the steps and somebody's standing on the bottom of the steps and because of that the freezer goes flying down, knocks the person over and kills him. You didn't mean to kill the person. You now, according to the Torah, are liable to run to the Ir Miklat, to the city of refuge, because if not, that relative has the full right to kill you. What did I do? If you go to court in the legal system, it's called uh, unintentional, 
or manslaughter, even though you killed a person, but it was unintentional, therefore you get off. You get a punishment sometimes if you're drunk, then it becomes intentional, but unintentional manslaughter, there's many different, many different cases. It's not considered that you killed somebody. But the Torah gives it to a certain level. Now, of course, there are differences even in the Torah. For example, if it was a complete accident, meaning that there was no way that you could have known that that person would have gotten killed, that you did all your due diligence. For example, you're driving and a kid runs in front of your wheels, that there was no way that you could have stopped it. That's something different. But over here, you should have taken the proper measures, either strap the freezer to the dolly that you're taking down or whatever it may be, and you didn't take the proper measures, you're considered killing somebody inadvertently, you have to go to the city of refuge or else they can kill you. That means the Torah gives credence to a person and as saying, you are responsible for what you do, no matter if you know about it or if you don't know about it. Seemingly the same idea over here also. If a person eats on Yom Kippur without knowing either that today is Yom Kippur or not knowing that you're, allowed to eat on, you're not allowed to eat on Yom Kippur, the Torah says, you did something wrong, you have to repent for the sin. Why is the Torah so strict about this? And the reason is because there's something deeper within the individual. Meaning that in every mistake or in every inadvertent act that a person does, he also acted advertently. That means there's something there as well. That means the very fact that a person had the ability to do something wrong, even though it was inadvertent, means that their situation, their presence of mind, their idea, their education, Mm -hmm. there is something wrong that preceded it. Mm -hmm. There was something wrong that was before it, that therefore they came to this situation that they were were able to act this way. That means every single person, every single individual, is not is susceptible to what they see and what they hear. And therefore, every single person has certain things that they value of importance. Take, for example, normal tendencies of the way males and females react. A man doesn't know you're talking to him unless you're screaming. A woman, the moment you scream, she shuts down, doesn't listen. A man doesn't know if the oven's on, the oven's off, if I have to turn off. Maybe the woman is always thinking about it. I have to go turn off the oven soon after it's going to burn. People, are, people find things that they are find important in their life. Every single person has certain things that they find of value. While other things they could have cared less. Take any instance where a person does something wrong. Whatever it may be. Certain people feel that's not important. So big deal if it's neglected. Walk into people's homes. Some people have homes that every single corner, if there's a little nick, it's right away gets painted. So other people, it's not important, it's not a big deal. Other people love their landscaping, and if they find a little leaf on it, they'll right away blow it and clean it. Other people, it's not important for them. Every person has things in life that's important for them. You say an example. What do you call when a person says something, you know, slip? It's called a Freudian slip. Why is it called a Freudian slip? Freudian slip. Because Freud, what, what was Freud's uh, concept? What was his idea? That deep down, every person's really evil, right? Mm-hmm. So therefore, it's called a Freudian slip. That means you really meant to say it. But because deep down, that's what you believe. You just usually you have a good cover on yourself and you don't say those things. And this time you slipped and you said what you really believe. That's where the Freudian slip is. The same idea is also when we talk about, the Rebbe explains the same idea when we look at a certain concept. You know, on Pesach, the Nitziv of Volozhin, his name Reb Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, he was the successor of the Prime of Volozhin, took over the great Volozhin Yeshiva in, uh, in, uh, in Lithuania. He had a very interesting question. 
The question that he had was as follows. He says, it comes Rosh Hashanah on Shabbos, we don't blow shofar. Sukkot comes out on Shabbos, we don't shake the lulav. Why? Because we're concerned that a person might go to the rabbi and ask him, how do I blow shofar? How do I shake the lulav? And I come to carry and therefore I don't do it. He says, why? Pesach comes out on Friday night. There are so many more laws concerning the matzah and the wine and everything else. Why are we not concerned that a person might go to the rabbi and ask him, how do I do it? And you shouldn't do it on Shabbos either. Why? Pesach and uh, Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot, we don't do on Shabbos. But Pesach we do on Shabbos. So Rabbi Neftali for Yehuda Berlin, the Revolution, he gives an ex- explanation and says because people at night are afraid to go out at night and therefore they won't go to carry because people usually don't go out at night. That was his answer, a practical answer. The Rebbe took it a step further and says as follows. He says the difference is when it comes to Pesach, the amount of time that a person prepared for Pesach puts him in the mode that he won't go out on Shabbos. The whole purpose of Pesach is that we think about how we're going to get rid of the chametz from our house. We're all involved for weeks already before Pesach, cleaning and scrubbing, selling our chametz, eating our chametz, burning our chametz, making sure we finish it in the right time. By the time it comes to the Seder, we're already so refined that we know that we're not going to go outside to be able to eat chametz. They are able to ask the rabbi what to do. That means the preparation towards a certain thing, you're now in a mode that automatically will not cause you to do something wrong. The reason why a person does something wrong is because they're not in that mode to begin with. So when you're not in that mode to begin with, you're going to end up doing things which are wrong. They used to say, the Rebbe's fathers explained according to Kabbalah, he says, you take the word shofar, lulav, and megillah. You take the last letters of each one, makes the word rabba. Where rabba said that a person might come to carry and therefore you don't do it on Shabbos. You take the first letters of each one of those, it means shalim, which means complete. A person who thinks I got it all, a person who's complete doesn't have to worry about it. But the person that's not in the moment, the person who's only at the end of his, it's not important for him, meaning it's at the end of his word. It's the last letter of his word. When I get to it, I'll have time for it. Those people are the ones that make the mistakes. Those people who might come to make the mistake. What's the bottom line? What does this bring us to? The same ideas. Who are those that are able to make an inadvertent sense? Who are those that make mistakes? Those who initially are in a position that those things are not important for them. Because if it was a value to you, you wouldn't be dropping it. If that fridge had in it gemstones, you'd make sure it's strapped, that it's not falling off your dolly. If something is a value to you, you make sure it's important that you don't make mistakes. The reason why we make mistakes or do things inadvertently is because, okay, if I don't do it right this time, I'll do it right next time. And therefore, when it comes to the one that's an inadvertent sin, you're going to bring the female sacrifice, which is less important than the male sacrifice, to tell us because the person who's done something wrong over here is worse off in a way than a person who did something on wanton on purpose. That's the way we can look at the words of Maimonides. But still in all, one would say that's a very big revolutionary idea to be able to say that doing something inadvertently is worse than doing something advertently. How is that possible? And therefore, Nachmanides wants to say the opposite. Nachmanides says that the concept that a person does a sin on purpose means that it's a harsher sin. Therefore, he has to bring a male sacrifice. And therefore, he has to be reminded that he shouldn't do it wrong. And according to Nachmanides, he says that the opposite is true. 
that their female, the inadvertent sin is less important or is lenient, more lenient, if you want to call it, than the one that does something on purpose. And therefore the question again, we're back to our original question, which one is it? Is it that the inadvertent sin is important less or more? Why are we bringing the inadvertent sin from the female and the advertent sin, the wanton sin, is coming from the male? And over here we can take it a step further and the way the Rebbe explains it is as follows. And to look at, not at the sin, but the way the Torah views forgiveness. What is the concept of forgiveness? What's the purpose of forgiveness? The purpose of why Torah has the concept, why Judaism has the concept of a U-turn that we can be forgiven, is to be able to motivate the individual to stop what they're doing and to be able to find a different path. Forgiveness is not about, okay, I'm sorry, move on, and I go back to write what I was doing. How do we motivate a person to feel true regret what they've done? And as we know in to do Teshuvah, the concept of repentance is a twofold concept. You need to regret the past and a commitment for the future. How do we get the person not only regret what they did past, but also to make it to the next step and to be able to realize and to recognize that they're going to fix what they're going to do in the past, in the future? How do we make sure that this sorry is not just a one time, is not just going to repeat itself and this sin is just a one time event? How do we make sure to be able to ingrain within the individual to say, okay, I'm ready to move further? And this is the difference between when it comes to a wanton sin to inadvertent sin. Every single type of sin comes from and has to look at where the individual is coming from. As we mentioned before, the difference between the female and the male is that the female you have to speak softly to, while the male you have to speak harsh to. As we mentioned, a female, if you yell at them, they're not listening. A male, if you don't yell, they're not listening to you either. And therefore, every, every sin has its approach. And every sin the Torah gives us its approach in the recipe by telling us what kind of sin this person has to be given. And therefore, a person who does a sin inadvertently, what happened here? He wasn't coming from a good place. He recognizes, I wasn't in the right space and therefore I came to make this mistake. Therefore, what does he need? He needs a little wake-up call. He needs an alarm clock. He has to recognize that where he was wasn't a good space. Speak to him softly. Let him identify and recognize what he did wrong and he'll be right back on the right path. And therefore, what does the Torah say? Use a female sacrifice. Speak to this individual softly. Don't knock him down. Don't destroy him. Don't, don't attack him. He did it inadvertently. Recognize the space he's coming from. Recognize he may have issues in his life, whatever it may be, trauma, drama, whatever it may happen. And therefore, speak to him softly and that will already inspire him to change his way that he should be able to have a proper forgiveness. On the other hand, the person who does something a wanton sin, a person who does something on purpose, he has to bring a male sacrifice. He's got to look, look deep and hard into where he's coming from. Why did the Yetzirah, how did the evil inclination really get such control over him? You think about it. Every single person has this ability to see where they're coming from and what caused them to do that sin. And recognize and realize that what the evil inclination really is doing over here is trying to control the person. The al Rebbe explains this. Imagine you have two kings trying to conquer one city. 
You know, today you have the very simple example. Unfortunately, we have a real example. Ukraine and Russia fighting over one city. Ukraine comes in, takes it over, and all the people, they're big Ukrainians, and they destroy it one way. Then Russia comes in and destroys it another way, and they say, no, you have big, big Russian allegiance. Which one are you? And well, first you're on one side, then you're on the other side. What does it mean that the person becomes control over one and the other? A person can become a totally different individual, depending on which way he's being pulled. Whether the evil inclination governs him, or whether it's the godly inclination that's governing him. They say a story of once the Bab of a Rebbe, the Bab of a Rebbe, Shleim Halbushtam, he was the only one from his family that survived the Holocaust. His entire family was decimated, destroyed, all this Hasidim, everything was wiped out. He was the only one that barely survived. He came to the, when he came after the war, he came to the Lower East Side. He didn't even get a minion. He went around looking on the Lower East Side to get a minion for a shul. He meets this fellow on the, sitting on a park bench and he brings him into the shul and says, can be a tenth man for a minion? It happened to be the guy had a very nice voice. He was a chazan. He sang and he was a chazan for a little bit. And slowly but surely as the Baba Verebe's minion grew, this fellow drifted out and uh, made his way someplace else. A few years later, even when the shul was already full to its seams, he told his son, the Shleimel Halberstam, turned to his son, and he says, go get that individual, bring him to shul. So he goes to look for him, and he comes back, and, he's, and when he goes to look for him, he sees it was Shabbos afternoon, he was sitting on a park bench smoking. So he comes back to his father, and he tells his father, did you bring, his father asked him, did you bring him? He says, no. He says, what do you mean? Where is he? He says, I couldn't find him. He says, what do you mean couldn't find him? I know where he is. He says, yeah, and he tells his father that he was sitting and smoking on Shabbos on a bench. His father looks at him and says, that was not him. That was the fellow who the Nazis hurt and destroyed. The true him was here a few years ago. And actually, many 30 years passed and all of a sudden a Jew comes into shul with a big beautiful voice wearing a bekish and strimal and everything else. And it was that fellow sitting on the park bench. He had to get rid of the Nazis and then he was able to come back to his true self. Many times the evil inclination tries to conquer us and tries to destroy us and tries to take us away from who we truly are and give us a different identity. And therefore the more the person gives up his identity to the evil inclination, he gives up of himself of who he truly is. He gives up his autonomy of who he is. What the godly inclination, who we truly are, is that we identify with our true essence to recognize who we truly are. And this is what the sacrifices did. When it came to a female sacrifice, and it came to the person who did an inadvertent sin, he only shifted a little bit from himself. But therefore we needed a little bit of a reminder to bring him back to who he truly is. However, when a person did a wanton sin, he needed that staunch reminder. He needed a strong reminder to remind him this is not truly who your essence is. You're truly a different individual. And therefore come back to who you truly are. Look at the story of the sin of the tree of knowledge. One can say, what's the big deal? The sin of the tree of knowledge. What they do? They only ate from a fruit. But what led to it? What came to it? Was the whole intellectual process that I'm going to eat from the tree of knowledge and nothing's going to happen to me. The outcome was that they only ate from a fruit. But what was that fruit came because of a conscious decision of what they were going to act. The same idea is also when it comes to the idea of the, uh, every action, when we look in the Mishnah and it says, every action is a reaction. What does this mean? And it says that every mitzvah that we do leads to another mitzvah. Every, every mitzvah leads to another mitzvah. Every avera leads to another avera. How is that possible? 
Just because I did one mitzvah, why am I going to do another mitzvah? And why, just because I did one avera, maybe I'm going to stop right there. But what is he telling us on the contrary? Every action is a reaction. When you do something, it's because when you do a mitzvah, you're connecting yourself with Hashem. And therefore, when I'm connecting with myself with Hashem, I want to have another mitzvah to connect myself with Hashem. On the contrary, when I do an avera, when I do a sin because I desire to do it, a wanton sin, meaning I want to do that sin. I decided that I want to be able to act a certain way. I am then giving over my jurisdiction, my autonomy to the evil inclination. So it's not just the action that I'm doing. This action is ultimately going to lead to another action afterwards. In fact, they used to say, if you want to notice when a person's doing something, if it's wrong or right, see what it leads to afterwards. There's a famous Talmud that was a great sage named by Rabbi Hanani ben Tradian. Rabbi Hanani ben Tradian, in the time of the, he lived in the time of the destruction of the temple where the Romans decreed that they were not allowed to study Torah. And one time he, real, he realized, Rabbi Hanani ben Tradian went to visit his teacher, Rabbi Yosef ben Kisma, who was sitting and crying, and he asked him, what's the matter? He says, I'm about to die, but I don't know which way I'm going to be leading to. So he asked him, tell me something good you did. So he says, that I made sure that one time when my money, when I was collecting money for the poor on Purim, and in one pocket I had my money, and in one pocket I had money for the poor, and I didn't know which one was which, I got mixed up, and I gave all of it to the poor. And Rebchanina ben Tradin said, don't worry about it, you're going to make it into the heaven. Now the question is, I don't understand Rebbe Yossi ben Kisma. He was a person who gave his life to study Torah. He risked his life by the Romans. We're going to kill him before the study of Torah. And what did Rebchanina ben Tradin say? Because he gave money to the poor, so therefore I know you're going to be okay. What does that mean? Studying Torah wasn't good enough for him to be okay? And over here, because Rebchanina ben Tradin was telling him, if you would have told me you only study Torah, I would think, okay, you like intellectual exercises of studying Torah, so therefore you risk your life for it. But now that you told me that your study of Torah led you also to helping a poor, the poor as well, that means you're not only doing it for your own gratitude. I know then you're okay. That means how do I know that what you're doing is just and appropriate? Is by seeing who governs you. Are you governed by the evil inclination or are you governed by the godly inclination? An inadvertent sin may say, I may have done something wrong, but it doesn't tell me who's governing me. I did something wrong and right now the Torah says, here you go. Here's a way to correct yourself. Here's a way to get over it. Here's a way to be able to fix what you did wrong. But then at the same time, if you did something on purpose, that wanton sin that you purposely went on to do it, that tells me you're living in the wrong space. You need something better to be able to change you. Especially when you recognize that every single Aveiro, when a person recognizes, and this is even more so what the Torah is telling us. It's not just an Aveiro, it's not just a sin. The Rebbe once gave the example, somebody once asked the Rebbe, what's the big deal if a person does something wrong? So what if the person took a cigarette on Shabbat? So what if he did a sin? Then the big cosmos, okay, another sin, does God really care? So the Rebbe gave the example as follows. And the Rebbe said, imagine you're an astronaut, that they spend billions of dollars to make a spaceship for you to go up to the moon. And one of the rules that while you're an astronaut is you're not allowed to smoke. Why? Because if one little spark hits one little of those things, that's it, a whole $2 billion go to, to nothing. But you're the astronaut, you're the one up in space, and you say, big deal, one cigarette, what's going to happen? But that one cigarette or that one screw, let's say you're, you're fixing your, the mechanic, and you just don't tighten the bolt all the way. Say, that one little bolt, big deal, washer's missing, what's going to happen? 
But that one little washer can make an extreme difference to the entire mission that was done. will fail because of it. The Rebbe says also, the same thing is also us in this world. We have to recognize that every one of our mitzvahs that we do has a cosmic difference. It doesn't just affect us, but it affects the entire universe. Now you're going to say, wow, that's a lot to live with. To be able to recognize, to have that on my, to have that on my shoulders every single time that I do this, do something right or wrong, to think that all of a sudden I'm going to... So Maimonides tells us, in the positive, a person has to view the world as it's a balanced scale, that every time you do something right, that can change the world. However, to always live with that in the negative, to say that my negative influence is going to... Yes and no. That means always to live with it. Might boggle you down. Might come from the evil inclination. You say, Am I, I'm finally blowing up the mission anyway. Why should it even start? But to have that reminder every so often, to recognize what we need, that's the importance. And that's why we have the two sacrifices. We have the female sacrifice for the inadvertent mission, and we have uh, uh, sin, and then the one for the advertent sin. We have the two of them over here to give us a proper balance. That yes, at one point I have to remember that your entire mission depends on you. You can destroy it. That might be you doing an affair. You can destroy the universe. But that's not the constant message you always have to have with you. With you, you have the soft the sin offering, the one from the female, speaking softly, reminding you, stay on course, stay on mission. Yes, we make mistakes, but we got to fix them. You have to have those two modalities. We see that in a funny story that happened in the Talmud. The Talmud tells us of a fascinating story. Rabbi Lazar Reb Shimon, the son of Reb Shimon Bar Yechai, was once walking on the street. And he sees this individual and he says, Ugly! Are all the people in your city just as ugly as you are? The guy looks back at him and says, if you, don't have a pro- if you have a problem the way I look, go to the maker who fashioned me. Mm-hmm. With that, Rabbi Lazarus Shimon got off his donkey and asked the man for forgiveness. He follows the man. The man didn't want to forgive him and he follows the man all the way to the city. They come to the city and all the people of the city come out to greet Rabbi Lazarus Shimon and say, oh, welcome teacher, welcome teacher. The man looks at them and says, he's your teacher? I hope you don't have more teachers like this. And they ask what happened. So he said, he says, please forgive him, please forgive him. Finally, he said, they forgave him. The man tells Rabbi Lazarus, Shimon, I forgive you on one condition. On the condition that you don't do this regularly. So now the question is, first of all, why did Rabbi Lazarus, Shimon, embarrass the guy? Secondly, if he embar- and it embarrassed him enough that he's asking for forgiveness. Secondly, if it was so bad that he embarrassed him, why does he tell him, don't do it regularly? Uh, once a week you could, but regularly don't. If it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. It's because we're missing part of the story. When he called him ugly, he wasn't calling him ugly because of his looks, of his physique. This person was a low down, if you want to call it the lowest level of common denominator, the way he behaved. He was ugly in his behavior of Torah and mitzvahs. Rabbi Lazarus of Shimon came along to this individual and he had to get him out of the rut. To get him out of the rut, he had to shock him. He had to give him a little shock and all. So he called him, you ugly piece of whatever. Is everybody just as ugly as you are? The guy got inspired. How do you see the guy got inspired? Because he recognized it is the creator. He says, go to, my fa- go to the one who fashioned me. He identified with God. The moment Rabbi Lazarus Shimon recognized that the person he got him out of the rut, 
He says, okay, now forgive me. I got you out of the rut. Now let's be friends. Let's learn together. Let's educate. What does the guy say? I'm not going to forgive you. Why does he say I'm not going to forgive you? Because he says, one second. Don't do this every day. This is not the type of way we are able to bring people closer to Judaism by threatening them or by abusing them. This is not something that should be done every single day. This is a one-time behavior. This is if a person's really bad. Every so often you can do it, but not regularly. And this is the bottom line, that we have to be able to live in both modalities. A person has to have with the belief that, yes, I have to have regret what I did wrong. But don't live a life of regret. Move forward. Don't live a life of in the rearview mirror. Live a life of looking out in front of you. Every so often, that's why we have a rearview mirror. To glance what we did in the past to make sure we don't repeat them again. Do not be a, not to be a repeat offender. But to live a life of regret, you'll never be able to live further. But you have to know that I have to regret what I did. It should always be there in hindsight. It should be there every so often to glance upon. To be able to know that what I did wrong, to be able to not to do it again. Every so often we have to empower ourselves and to give ourselves a little bit of a shake up and say, where am I? What did I do? As it says in the Tehillim, in the first psalm, in the first psalm of the Tehillim, Lucky is the one who has not gone in the advice of the evil. And he hasn't sit in the um, and he hasn't sit in the um, and he hasn't sit in the in the company of uh, of uh, scoffers. So the question is, if he never went in the advice of the evil, how can he sit in the company of the scoffers? What is this telling us? That if he is going to go in the way of evil, eventually not only will he be a scoffer, he'll be not only will he sit in the company of scoffers, he'll be a scoffer as well. Meaning. We always have to be weary of the advice that we don't take the advice of the evil inclination. We say, go, but you won't participate. I'll just watch from the distance. What happens is we watch from the distance then we get a little close until we become a participant. We have to remember, and that's where we need that sometimes the shock and awe to remind us to take a step back. But once we took a step back and we realize where we are, we have to keep on marching forward, recognizing and not keeping our turning back and looking what I did wrong and how and can't let it haunt you. The bottom line is, as finally as we know that the time of the coming of Mashiach will be able to bring the sacrifices, all the wonderful sacrifices, and hopefully just by speaking about the sacrifices, we've already accomplished about bringing the sacrifice, that Pesach already will be able to bring the ultimate sacrifice, the carbon Pesach, with Mashiach may be now. Amen.